Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Yeah, right. and, and in the past few years, I've been more excited about the Super Bowl because the when my loves the Patriots, and so when they play, but now he hates Tom Brady. So, anyways, and the halftime <laughs> show was terrible. I didn't see it the weekend. I just didn't see it. Yeah, my thing is like, uh, and uh, maybe it was Beyonce who, when she did her show our prince too it's like they they imbued meaning they took they took advantage and lady gaga too and they took advantage of the platform and and like did all these really cool references and i appreciate that so much especially at an event like the super bowl which everybody knows including me that football is a horrible barbaric thing that nobody should ever do and and the nfl is a horrible, terrible racist organization that, by the way, had a commercial for itself saying that they were pledging $250 million to end racism. Like what, what, what are you, what are you going to buy an end racism machine? What does that mean? I don't know what, what you're, pl- and oh, also sure. $250 million is nothing for the NFL. Right. So it kind of, felt like, it felt like me saying like I donated $25 to right. end racism. Right. So there was that, but, but yeah, the weekend, like his reference, he didn't have any special guests, which is terrible. And his references were all just about himself. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad I didn't see. I, yeah, I, I, we watched it. Like, it's so funny. The place where we're staying has a Roku and by accident it, it came on and then we watched, but my thing with sports is if any team it's so interesting. If any team is really getting their butt kicked, I can't watch. It's too painful. It's too painful for me. And I think when the uh, Tampa Bay started just creaming, you know, creaming them, Kansas city, I was like, this is a humiliation. It's the humiliation. I'm, I feel it for them. I'm codependent. So I took on their humiliation. I have no, what do I care? But I was like, this is too, I turn it off miles, turn it off. So we turned it off. It was too much. Yeah. And and also there's always that element too of like Tom Brady's such an asshole oh. and he wore a mask when he when they do that thing where they film them coming in and he was the only one not wearing a mask. Oh and um this guy Patrick Mahomes seems really cool. Yes. So we wanted him to win, you know. Anyway. And it was just a, it was a recipe for a bummer, right? Really. And then, you know, I have that whole thing I wanted to tell you about, like being on the wait list for this thing. Yeah, oh my God. I had no idea how competitive this shit is. So like they send the thing. I have a friend who works in the who was a judge last year, but she said that um, waitlisting is and that brings up a whole thing about being waitlisted because that happens a lot on our podcast. People were waitlisted or like not accepted to the theater mm-hmm. school and then accepted magically. I was cut and then not cut. So it brought up all this stuff when we so we applied for this you know, this um, retreat because we are quarterfinalists, but they don't tell you there's like two slots for the quarterfinalists or like four or something. And then, so at 1201, when they send out the you're invited, all the quarterfinalists RSVP. And so anyway, 
it just was like, actually, you're on the wait list. I was like, you know what? I, I, I hate wait lists. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it invokes this whole like cooler than you thing. Um, you know, like we like you. It's, it's, it's like being the, the side chick kind of a thing. It's like, it is you, but we don't love you. But if somebody who we love doesn't like us, then we'll call you. For a- I don't think they should do that. I think they should say, these are the people that are in. Um, some slots might open up. We'll let you know. Let us know if you're, I don't know. I just call it something else. I don't know. It's like being the alternate. I remember, oh my God, I was a cheerleader in seventh grade. God help us all. And I, the first, oh my God, the first audition I did great. They gave you what to do. They gave you the cheers to learn. Uh, Mr. Schoenberg was the guy. And he was this, this awesome gay dude that like, was so into cheerleading. Anyway, um, he, he, so the first thing was prescribed. You learn this, you do these moves. I, I could follow directions. The second one was where creativity had to come in and you had to look, just do a dance that you choreograph to any song. Oh, and wow. I was too, I didn't like that. That didn't, it didn't, anyway, I screwed up the dance. It didn't go well. And I was an alternate. I hate that. It's just like, yeah, it's just so, you have to really, you know what I don't like about it? You got to just so humble yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in, 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 in this instance, in a place, you know, in an industry that's nothing but humbling, unless you're in the top 1%, it's like, oh, great. A more, more crow that I really just didn't need to eat right now. Thank right. you. Right. And the thing that's a, a shocking about these things is also that it's you're waitlisted and then you have to pay. So it's not as though... It's just so crazy. And it, it, it's, it's also. Oh, you have to put down the deposit to be on the wait list? No, no. I just mean like you're waitlisted for something that then you have to pay for. Oh, Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's not like you're waitlisted for a grant or a, or a scholarship or something. I know. I sound really, really bitter this morning, but it's just more like. Well, think about it. I mean, some people get waitlisted to buy like a Birkin bag, you know, that Shut costs up. 30. Oh, yes, ma'am like a $30,000 bag that you just can't get. I mean, that's, I mean, honestly, it's this whole mystique around supply oh and things that everybody wants to think that's, there's not that much of, I mean, that's just how humans are, are wired. Meantime, it's like, okay, wh- like give us uh do these people have these mentors? Do they have their own business where they, I mean, I, can we just circumvent this whole thing and like, right. Right. And also it's virtual. So they could have more people. I mean, I guess it's the mentorship that that's the problem. They don't want to give mentors to, and I get it, but you're right. It's like, can we just kind of, and I, I feel like you and I, in our whole mission, we're going to end up circumventing or getting, getting in some other way anyway, probably. So I, I, I I don't feel like we fit the mold of a 22 year old. That's like, I'm a hot writer. I need a mentor. It's going to be some other kind of situation. And um, so I, I, and I agree with, I I just, um, yeah, I'm, I, I got over it, but I, I'm still obviously a little bitter about it, but it just got me thinking about like being an alternate or being a, you know, you're right. Like being less than um, understudy, the whole thing. It's like, and it brings me to check avail when you're on check avail as an actor, they check avail probably anywhere from two to six people. And you, then you're released. It's a garbage system. <laughs> it's a 
a totally garbage system. And honestly, I I listen to so many podcasts, and you, it's often with celebrity guests, and just the number of people who. I mean, people talking about getting 26 callbacks for something that they oh eventually <laughs> didn't get or that they eventually did get, but still 26 call- I mean, can you imagine? Oh, what are we doing? It's like, like if, I mean, and, and granted, there are big jobs, things like Saturday Night Live and stuff like that, but and, and you under, I know there's so many people that you have to impress, but it's just, it's, it's, the, it's simply the most demoralizing. We picked the most demoralizing industry. Oh, great. Well, that's great. Yeah. So um, yay for us. We made such a great decision. <laughs> but anyway, we, listen, it, we tried to do other things. We really tried to do other things. Uh, we really tried. We did a lot of other things. I was thinking of, you know, all my jobs at the donut shop. I worked at a donut shop that was, oh, God. I worked at two donut shops. One was my first job. I couldn't get away from donuts, apparently. My second. Then, like, recently, like, two years ago, I worked at, a like, a, a cafe. I thought that would be a good idea. It was a horrible idea. I just, and you've had a lot of jobs. I've had 37 jobs. Yeah. And I still have to write that blog post, but one of my jobs was, um, one of my jobs was at the San Francisco Hilton at their penthouse floor restaurant, Whoa! the bar that's in the restaurant. And you had to wear like a rayon blouse, which rayon doesn't breathe um right me and fabrics that don't breathe is not good like a like a rayon pencil skirt with a high slit and high heel shoes oh my god I had three waitressing jobs where I had to wear high heel shoes and I'm convinced that that's the source of all my your back back pain yeah oh my god that's horrible torture it was, and, and it's it's just like completely unnecessary. I mean, because when you unpack it, it's well, we want you to be sexually appealing to the customers. Yeah, like, I'm not selling sex here. I'm selling drinks. Do you want to drink? Right. <laughs> right. No, it's so true. Why don't we put all the emphasis on how these bottles of alcohol look instead of how I? Yes. Well, you'll be happy to know that the sale I just read on an article of high heel shoes has dropped fifty percent over the last year because of COVID. Nobody yeah. gives a rat's ass about high heel shoes at work because there is sense, no work. Right. That makes sense. Why? Um, do you know about Lord Jones? Oh, it's, the name is familiar. What is it? It's a CBD, a company that sells CBD products. Um, and they like including lotions, but also supplements, which I take every day because it does actually have a really good um, impact on my mood and not all CBD products are created equally. Oh, I'm going to write that down. They did a partnership with Tamara Mellon, who is a stiletto designer and it's called stiletto cream and you put you know so you put it on your feet and then before you wear your stilettos and it's supposed to save your feet from hurting but i i got my monthly shipment of the capsules and it had like 12 free packets of this and i'm and i and i had the same thought it must be because nobody's buying this because there's no red carpets and there's no people aren't going into the office so there's no need to wear stilettos 
honestly, sometimes, and this is one of the things I wanted to run by you, but it's not, it's not even really like a conversation to have. It's not even really anything to run by you. I just, some days I get so down about sexism. Like some mm-hmm. days it just really hits me like, God damn, even that, even that is impacted by gender, even that. And, and like, and all the subcategories of sexism, mm-hmm. beautyism and thinism mm-hmm. and all, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it's mostly I'm, I feel mostly I always know it's there and I feel like this simmering anger about it but then some days it just makes me so sad mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. kind of yeah I'm- it's kind of inescapable right it's like it is the way yeah when it reality hits you that things are the way they are and they're really bad it's really hard and on the other side of that it's like and then i i, I always feel like once that passes, I can move on and try to make changes. But when it hits, oh, it's really bad. It's really bad when you realize that somehow how how deep stuff goes. That mm-hmm. is um, all the isms. How deep they go, and how long, and how yeah, and how it does feel like a losing. It does feel like a losing battle. Yeah, it does. It does. And and and. and 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 to put it into perspective like it's better than it was it will be better than it is it's all the arc of history blah 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 but yeah in the moment sometimes it's really overwhelming okay so the thing i wanted to run by you is hey let me run this by you this expression safe space (laughs) okay okay I have always really bristled at that term and I never stopped to ask myself why, because the concept of it is absolutely correct. Like, yeah, people need to be in a, in a, in a place where they don't feel threatened. Okay. But I guess this also ties into the sexism thing too, because you, you hear it. It's, it's this, this term is bandied about a lot with things that revolve around women. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to be in a safe space. I want to be in a powerful space. Mm. It's not enough to say, don't worry, nobody's going to rape you here. Right. Or nobody's going to kill you here. Like that's the bar, right. you know? Right. No, no, no. <laughs> right. I want to go to a place where they say, and you're going to be allowed to own your full power here. Oh, and- I understand that like this term is applied in a myriad of ways and it's not always rape is not always on the, the menu, on the but still it's, it's, it, to me, it feels very infantilizing, very, you know, paternalistic, like, don't worry, there's a safe space for you to come and, you know, wear your tampons and put, right, put, right. <laughs> Put on your stilettos and sling and sling liquor. Right. No, I agree. And you know, you hearing that. Okay. I saw a bumper sticker. It was a, it was a Trump guy who had one of these crazy cars in, and this was in, in Pasadena all decked out. And one of the things was take your safe space and shove it up your ass. (laughs) 
And it's it, it made me laugh because I thought, you know what? They're catching on to the fact that this is like we are like this is where snowflake comes from. Do you know what I'm saying? And you're right. It's very valid. We need say we actually need safe spaces. But when you make it a slogan or um, a catchphrase or a, it becomes less than and then people can make fun of it like Joe Blow on the on his trucks. And I thought it was pretty funny. Take your safe space and shove it up your ass. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. You know, it, it exists. Safe space. I mean, you know what? Really also what we're talking about is like, the sexist version of the of the racist dog whistle like it's just this coded language that we all know what it means and it do, and it doesn't feel good it exists in the same realm as like when people say when something awful happens to a woman and i was just listening actually to a an old podcast that was that came out right around when bill cosby's uh-huh. shit was blowing up and the person who it was Judd Apatow, he, yeah. he's like a big champion. He, he, I mean, Hannibal Burris is the first person I think right. who was like really out about it. But um, Judd Apatow was got on his high horse too. And when somebody asked him why he cared, he said, because I have daughters. Okay. I mean, that's great. I'm glad you have daughters and I'm glad you care about their well being. but you shouldn't have to have any special circumstance thinking that it's wrong to brutalize a human being. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And also he can shut up. I don't, I don't like, I mean, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot. If he had called us for a meeting, I, my ass would probably be like, great, let's go. We could make a rom-com where there's (laughs) farting and pooping. Um, But, 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 but I just, yeah, I have daughters is not, it's not a good reason. It's like, I have a black friend or my husband is black. So I'm going to, and it's like, no, no, no. It goes like what you were saying. It goes deeper. It's deeper. It's a deeper thing that we should, it's a human, but it just, we're just so dumb. We're all just so dumb. We're dumb. And we're also just, um, we're just behind. I mean, we're just behind. Like, it's weird to say we're behind the times because you can't be behind the times if, the, if this. it's always the times. But right. I, it, it does feel to me, it, it maybe just feels this way, particularly our country mm-hmm. is behind. And I know that there are other countries that are way more behind, but there's also other countries that are way more ahead with yeah. all this gender stuff, like seriously way ahead. Um, and it And it's another thing that makes me kind of sad. I think we'll get there. I mean, my positive note about it is I do think, I do believe in the arcing of justice thing. Was that Barack Obama's quote, by the way, or did he, was it MLK's quote that Barack Obama? I think it was MLK's quote originally, but I could be wrong. So listeners, forgive me. I'll put it in the show. I'll look it up and put it in the show. Yeah, exactly. I do really fundamentally believe in that. I mean, you know, despite the, the the ups and downs and the hiccups along the way, I do fundamentally think that that's where it's going. It's just that when you're in the part of the phase of it where it's it's unfolding, it, it's it sucks. I did say it does suck. I did say when when I responded to um, this this gentleman um, writing to us saying we were on the wait list, I did say, you know, fingers crossed, as two middle aged underrepresented women, <laughs> we'd really like to go. And uh, that's awesome. So I just, you know, fingers crossed. I, that's what I wanted to say. I wanted to say, like, if tell me you don't have 
a bunch of 22 year old white men in your retreat because if you do you need to fix that that was my way of saying like just hello just letting you know we're underrepresented and we'd love to go even though we're you know the other thing is like i do a lot of these researching for contests and fellowships for writers and there's a, a a writer's lab in new york city that takes place that's sounds fantastic for women over 40 it's the thing meryl streep found it helped found but the thing is they're like i so i write and i say hey you know we're a writing team and we're both over 40 and we're both we're both women and they're like well sorry only one of you would be able to go and i'm like what is the point of this so now you've got why aren't there enough slots for if anyway i just things are you know, I have trouble with things. It's like, just make more slots, people. Well, I, I and maybe I'll share um, a more positive um, um, take that the, the whole thing, I mean, yeah, it, I would prefer to go to that thing. And it's too bad if we don't get to go to it. But at the same time, these two experiences we've had with Austin Film Fest and, and this of getting to this quarterfinal stage this always makes me really inwardly delight because i know something that they don't know which is that was not our 100th draft that was our first draft. (laughs) right right i think i have to remember that it was our for austin was our first draft and first was like our fifth but still but still still. I have to remember that, but it's easy in the minutia of applying for these things and having conversations with, and I understand everyone's doing the best they can. I always preface that. It's just not good enough for me sometimes. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, that's it's just like my mother. She always used to say, I did my best. And I used to, finally, I ended up saying it wasn't good enough. I hate to tell you this, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. And that's just the mm-hmm. fact for me. I'm, I'm moving, I'm moving on with my life, but so I need to preface it with that because I, I do know that everyone is doing the best they can with what they have in the moment. Sometimes it doesn't just jive with me and I have an attitude problem about it, you know, but, um, yeah. but I think I do have to remember that that's true. That like, this was our first, our first shitty draft of Kiki went to the, went to the uh, quarterfinals or whatever. <laughs> I don't know why it's funny. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's all, I, it's all of the things. It's funny. It's sad. It's angering. It's, it's frightening. It's uplifting. It's, I mean, it's everything. It's, that's why, that's why it's the only thing we can do. Right. Because on my best day as a therapist, and I had a lot of good days as I had a, and by a good day, I mean a day where I felt like I really helped somebody or somebody reflected back to me that I had been really helpful. I I don't denigrate that at all. I'm I, I am very proud of that work, and I know you're proud of the work yeah. that you did helping drug addicted people, people who are part of the criminal justice system. Um, and yet, <laughs> it didn't feed me. No, me it didn't neither. give anything. It didn't really ultimately give that much back to me, or at least like maybe maybe there's something about how artists are. It's like, there's a one way, there's only, um, how do I mean to say it? Be- being an artist is in some ways like ha- having to be on a special diet. Like there's only certain things that work to, meta- 
you know, like we'll metabolize everything that comes in, but it's not all nutritious for us. Right. And it doesn't make us thrive, right? It can't, it can't make us grow and thrive the way that making art can. Yeah. I, I, I also knew that I was, and this is um, not common, I mean, not uncommon, but I was working so hard for $37,000 a year that I was like, I'm going to die at 50 if I keep, I'm not going to thrive in any way. I'm not thriving in any area of my life other than I maybe check the box of being of service, right? I did feel of service, but what was happening to me on the other side was so draining and so, so, so costly to my well-being that it wasn't, it wasn't working out. It just wasn't working out. And I, and I, and, and, you know, that's a whole systemic problem of of social services being not funded and we don't care about you know, mentally ill people really a lot in this country. So, Mm -hmm. and and drug addicted people. So, so I got what was going on. I just knew I had to remove myself from that situation or bad things were going to happen to my body. You know, I was drinking five, Trump drank 12 Diet Cokes a day, but I'm Mm -hmm. in the White House and he had a Diet Coke button. Do you know he had a button that was for Diet Coke, Trump? (laughs) He did. They came out and said, horrible. That's horrible. (laughs) Mine would be like shrimp and almonds, shrimp and almonds. So anyway, the point is I wasn't far behind him. When I worked as a, as a therapist in social services, I drank probably six Coke zeros a day. Mm -hmm. That's not right. Yeah. What, what is it about how there are certain things that we give ourselves that, you know, that we have this idea really help us to go forward that are simply so destructive. I read this really great quote um, that I wrote down and, and put up so that I can see it. Discipline is, a f- I always think about discipline as being like, I, some, I sometimes think about discipline as being like a way just to be harder on yourself. Yeah. I, actually, I have always thought about it that way. And then yesterday I read a quote that said, discipline is the highest form of self-care because you love yourself enough to deny a temporary and impermanent pleasure for a um, long lasting and whatever enriching one. That's amazing. That's what it is. That's That's exactly right. And I feel like, yeah, go ahead. No, no, just that. So I've been in this battle of like, oh, great. I have to be more disciplined at the same time as I have to do all these other things instead of seeing it for what it really is. But what what I was going to say, I love that quote because it's like a more um, holistic and uh, and reasonable and a way of saying what people usually say at like diet programs and stuff, which is nothing tastes as good as being thin feels the garbage garbage but it is true in that it's about the feeling of whole health versus the momentary gain of sugar whatever your thing is crack I don't care Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. but that quote really kind of breaks it down and says oh wait it takes it out of the um mea culpa like trying to atone for something and brings it into the self yeah it brings it into the highest form of being um caring for ourselves which I can get with I can fully get with that. That's amazing. Okay, today on the show,
show we have for the very first time, uh, uh, not an actor, not not actually a student either. He was an administrator at the theater school, and we all felt really taken care of by him. He really, as you mentioned in the interview, he really cared about us, which was really fantastic. And he's um, a smart, witty, funny, sassy human being, and he retired and was there for 30 something years at the theater school so he knows a lot that's right enjoy but really uh oh <gasps> it it's oh the my master God. himself hello hello congratulations you survived oh. theater school <laughs> In a different uh, way yeah. than our previous guest. Although, did you go to theater school for no, your education? No, 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 no. Where, where, what, what kind of a uh, undergraduate education did you have? Uh, undergrad, I got a BA in English education with a minor in Spanish. Oh, habla oh. español! I didn't know that about you. So, how on earth did you end up working at the theater school? Oh, good question. Um, what happened was I, after I got my BA, uh, that was in 73, um, a lot of people had just gotten their BAs. Everybody had one in something to do with English, geography, history, and there were no teaching jobs. And I spent two years applying for jobs before I finally, uh, got an interview and was offered a job, and I took it, and it was in a town of 400 people called Plymouth, Illinois. It was a K through 12 in one building, one room per grade. Wow. And I was there for three years. Taught Each of the three years, I taught a mix of grades 6 through 12, you know, some version of spelling, grammar, literature, uh, I directed a play each year I was there, which, thank God, none of them were recorded. Um, <laughs> but then, I, I'm sorry, that's a long way to explain. What happened was I also got my master's in English at Western Illinois University uh, while I was there. When I got to my third year of teaching, I realized I couldn't continue doing it for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I decided that at the end of the third year, I would quit and move back to Chicago, which is what I did. And that summer, I had no uh, outstanding debts. And that summer, I went to Europe with one of my sisters, came back, no job, no interest in doing, no idea what to do. And one of my sisters was a part-time she worked in the box office at Goodman Theater. And she said, hey, the school is moving to DePaul University. I think they may have a job open. And they had a job open for part-time box office treasurer. And you thought, and I've been dreaming of this since I was five years old. I've been dreaming of this. What happened was the Goodman School was closing. And it, they, were, they had three years to close. At the end of the third year, DePaul announced it was taking the Goodman School of Drama. So they had to rush everything up. They had no students. So over the summer, they, you know, 
auditioned, interviewed people. A lot of them were people who had taken part-time classes at the Goodman to enroll in DePaul. And so they started in the fall with a very skeletal crew. And that's when I started. You both graduated 97? I was 98. 98? Uh-huh. Well, weren't you in the building on Kennedy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that wasn't our first building. Oh, that, right? I didn't know that. No. Me neither. See, actors. Dumb as rocks. Uh, no, you know where the music school is? Yes. That's where we shared spaces with the music school. On the school. corner of Fullerton so we were, and um, Lincoln, right? Lincoln, Fullerton, and Halston. So we were in that building with them. Also, do you remember the Commons? Yeah. That's where our theater was initially. Oh. Oh, wow. It was, it, it was actually designed, the Commons was the, when that was the McCormick Theological Seminary, the Commons was the eating area okay. for the all of the uh, religious people who worked at the Theological Seminary. And the university told the theater school that they could change the Commons into the theater, as long as they didn't make any structural changes inside. Oh. So Jim Jim Moronic, who was a scene design faculty member with the Goodman School of Drama, he had also graduated from Goodman School of Drama and moved with it to DePaul. He designed the stage that we use, and I think we used that for three years. I can't remember. But, and also, uh, do you remember, it's often referred to as the cheese grater building? Yes. It, oh, that, now tor- that rings a bell, but it was it, it a was ri- It was right by the music school building, and it used to be the library. And what happened was they discovered that the books were too heavy for the floors, so they moved the library, and the theater school took over that space, and it was... The main floor was completely open, so they used to use put partitions up and have classes. So you might have a movement class on one side of a partition and a voice class on the other side. Oh. So it was really weird. But we were there for eight years and then moved oh. to the school you know. How is it to be retired? Uh, the most amazing feeling in the world. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear you say that. So many people retire and then don't know what to do with themselves. You must have uh, a lot of hobbies to keep you busy. Well, the thing is, I and I tell the story all the time, I started working illegally when I was 13 because you're not allowed to work. I don't know if it's nationwide or just Illinois, but you can't work anywhere until you're 14 and you have to get a worker's permit and then you're only allowed to work a certain number of hours. But I worked at uh, my dad's, uh, where my dad worked, it was a DePrado statuary company. They built statues for Catholic churches, all that kind of junk. And I was the mail boy. So I would take mail, carry packages to the post office and mail them. And I started that when I was 13. And I always said, the only reason I'm working is because one day I want to retire. So when I was in, like, I said this, you know, when I was at Plymouth, uh, I said it, the, you know, all the time I was at DePaul. And every, every time I would say it, especially when I was younger, people would say, oh, John, you don't know what you're talking about. And I, no, no, no. That is my goal 
to be able to retire. And I actually ended up taking an early retirement from DePaul. Because oh. I don't know if you know this, but uh, DePaul was, has always been a very fiscally conservative university. They, uh, they were very lucky in that all the decisions they made to grow, uh, to, to uh, increase the enrollment, to build new buildings, to, to buy more real estate, they were very lucky that all, almost all the decisions they made in their history, uh, luck was with them. So they, every time they did that, they did it at the best time you could do it. And wait, now where was I going with this? Just that they had money about, and they retire? offered you a bunch oh, yeah, of money to retire? Yeah. Well, what happened, no, what happened was, uh, it's, now I've forgotten the term, but they, they, when I started there, DePaul did not have an endowment. Oh, wow. So their operating expense, in order to operate the university, they needed the tuition income. So what they would do is every year they would plan a budget based for the next year, based on what they assumed the enrollment was going to be. And what happened for years, all the years I was there, 36 years, the first 34, 33 of those 34 years, they operated in the black. Whoa. And only one year did they, uh, they were in the red. Well, what happened was DePaul experienced two years in a row of operating in the red, probably not by much. I don't, I don't remember the figures, but they got scared. And one of the uh, things they decided to do was, for the first time, offer early uh, retirement to staff. They had offered it once before to faculty, but this time they offered it to faculty and staff. And uh, actually a huge number, I, but I don't know what huge means. A hundred? I, I don't know, but quite a few people took advantage of it. But that was in June of uh, 2014. And I had been planning on retiring in June of 2016 anyway, mm. but... Uh, they yeah and they do offer you money of course they offered faculty more money yes right that's, well, that's, that's the way it works them, them's the breaks so i have so many questions yeah. to ask you one of them is i mean because we we spent a lot of time talking about sort of the cult of personality of the teachers at the theater school and and by the way we say this all with the caveat that we understand things have changed times have yeah. changed but we're, we we only know about our experience right right and i'm just curious about how some of those professors got hired like what was the you know because it's not a traditional like any other field you have to have a phd in something to teach right, in college right. so how did it how did it come to be you know the ricks and the davids and the phyllises how did they well you do know that uh like an mfa as opposed to an ma an mfa is a terminal degree that's considered the same as if you get a doctorate if i were to get a oh, PhD in English. so an mfa is terminal now not everybody at uh, DePaul at the theater school has an MFA. In fact, uh, no, I, I'm not going to say. I, I'm pretty sure there was a faculty member hired uh, without a degree. And that can happen. A university can do that. And in fact, in one of the dean searches, um, 
I think it was the one where we ended up with Michael Maggio. Were you there when Michael Maggio? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was on that search committee and one of the people who had applied for it did not have a college degree. And that actually was one of the major reasons why he ended up being eliminated from the list. But that was because he was applying to be a dean and the unit and I think it was a thing like it would not reflect well on the university to have a dean without a, a doctorate. But other than that, a lot of it was uh, like, let's say, uh, was Feldenkrais work done? Oh, yes. Now, who did it? Patrice. Uh, Patri- you, Patrice, but also I, I had a teacher who I think didn't last there long, Ruth Rootberg. Did she, also, remember the name. did she also do Feldenkrais or well, was it all Patrice? The thing about it is I, I think Patrice came, probably was the one who came with the Feldenkrais and then okay. uh, uh, Trudy Kessler mm-hmm. and ended up being certified in Feldenkrais. Mm-hmm. She decided to do it. Uh, Phyllis Griffin did. Uh, they, they just chose to do that. And a lot of times, uh, like when they're looking, let's say for an acting teacher, they look at the strengths of the different candidates and how will that match with or add to what is already on the faculty. Interesting. So it's like an ensemble situation. Right, right. And it also always, uh, it it changed, you know, through the years. And uh, when Rick Murphy and Bella retired, the same year, I can't remember what year it was, but do you remember about this CD that we did where, uh, okay, um, who's that guy who has that, I, I, he may be dead now, but he, he used to uh, bring in famous actors on TV. And, oh, James Lipton. James Lipton, James Lipton. He's dead, but he He's lived dead. a long time. Right, well, what they decided to do, this is when, uh, John Colbert was dean, was to do that type of thing with Rick and Bella. And I was on the the small committee that, you know, organized all the questions that were going to be asked and all this stuff. And then it came to the point of deciding, well, who's going to, uh, who's going to be the James Lipton? And John Colbert asked me to do it. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. I, I am not an actor. I do not like being on camera. I don't like, I don't even like listening to my voice. I just, I just do not. But he basically pressured me into doing it. And I, and the reason, the logic he used is you've known both of them for years and they will be most comfortable talking to you. And I think that ended up being the case. But the reason I bring that all up was one of the questions that we asked both of them. And I do not remember Bella's answer but I remember Rick's, was, you know, if you came back to the theater school in five years, what would you expect to find? And his answer was, he said, well, what I would hope the school does is that it will continue to grow and change. And that if I walked into any class, you know, whether it's an acting class, a playwriting class, a directing class, I would see something going on that I was not a, that I had was not aware was being done when I was there, and that it was something new. He said, "That's what I hope that it continues 
to grow and change. Cool. And and it seems like it has. Uh, Yeah. And even now, like I've been gone, now it's been over six years. Um, Most of the people who were there when I was there full time are gone. Yeah, uh, and, I was looking at the list online. I except for Jason Beck, who was my classmate, uh, and and um, Rob, Rob Adler. Yeah, except for I, I didn't know him, and uh, John Culber. Those are the only names I recognized. Well, well, Phyllis is still there, I think. Oh, wow, I'm pretty sure. Oh, we have to get her. <laughs> and and Patrice. Oh, okay. Yeah. We have to get the CD. Is the CD available? I would love to I, get the, to it. The school has it. Okay. And, uh, what do you mean? I, uh. I just oh, it was a it was was it painful it a, for you? Yeah. Well, what was painful was after it was all done, we filmed it five days in a row, and then we hired a studio to edit it. And then again, I was pressured into being the theater school person to work with them to edit it. So I had to listen to it over and over it's and like over. a play where you're in hell oh. you're in hell and the truth is and not to speak ill of the dead but bella you may remember what could be a very competitive person and bella <laughs> bella adored rick she i he might have been about the only one she probably adored him more than anyone else at the school and i would i would ask bella like uh uh, what do you think is the most important thing a teacher can bring to the classroom? And she would give an answer. And then I'd say, Rick, what do you think of it? Well, Rick, his answers were usually pretty eloquent and pretty interesting. Not that Bella's weren't, but Bella, you know, Bella was Bella. She'd be like, you know, go all over. But she'd make a good point. But then what would happen more often than not is when I attempted to move on to the next question, Bella would say, I would love to ask. That's fantastic. <laughs> because she did, I, you know, and in, in my mind, I don't know if it's true, but in my mind, I thought, wow, she just, she gave an answer. She thinks Rick's answer was better. So I she has to that. add something to, to at least, at least get to the same. Did she, did she write her book? while you were there or was it already it, written or I don't I don't know I don't know either okay she's got a book but she asked me to come into her classes uh and take pictures um because she wanted for the uh, uh you know for illustrations in the book and I told her I would only do it if it was okay with the students because I felt really awkward doing it well of course they said they said fine and I remember one of the classes, as I was taking, going around taking pictures, anytime someone was behind Bella, you can imagine what they were doing that I would see. <laughs> and I was trying to take pictures and I was like, I can't take a picture of this because they'd be doing the most <laughs> obscene thing. Oh no. Oh, no, that's oh. terrible. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, whoa. Did you, John, John, did you love your job? Did you yeah. hate what you did? I loved it. And okay. the, the reason I loved it was um, I grew up in a big Irish Catholic family. And in my family, you, you did your work, 
uh, in school, you did your homework, you know, you just, you did what you were supposed to do. Um, if this is when I was a little kid, if you got in trouble in the Catholic school with the nun, the nun would call the parents, the parents would just slap the kid and say, don't ever do that again. You know, and of course it's not like that anymore. But another precept was, um, we were also bragging was not, uh, appreciated. And when I went to, when I started at the theater school, and, and of course for me, as you, you were talking about the school changing over the years, it changed me over the years into, and, and not just from the acting students, it was from students in all the different programs. I know, and it took me years to uh, figure this out in my head that this had happened, that I saw how dedicated they were to their work. Um, I saw how uh, they put so much emphasis on collaboration and uh, and acting wise, the whole thing about in a scene, you know, you make it about the other actor. It's not about you. You make it about the other and the importance of listening. And uh, early in my career at the theater school, if a student would come into my office, my attitude was often I didn't. Sometimes I said it, but usually I I projected the attitude of you know, I got a lot to do. What do you want? You know, but then what that gradually morphed into was, wait a minute, I think isn't part of my job to, to listen and, and everything. So I, I, it gradually changed into that area. And often students would come in and say, you know, they, whatever they, and sometimes they talk about all different things, but often they would apologize and say, I'm really sorry you know, you must hear this all the time. And my standard response was, I, I mean, I didn't want to lie. I said, you're right. I do hear this a lot, but th this is the time I'm hearing it from you and not yes. from someone else. So it's different. So I really did love the job because I think it made me a better person. Mm, I love Cer that. Certainly not a better actor. <laughs> my um my feeling about you was always one of that yes you were snarky but you really did give a shit i remember yeah. thinking this man cares deeply about us and he in and, and, and there's of course this exterior and blah 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 that we all have but that it was never a doubt in my mind that you you were so compassionate and cared about us. And I actually, I really appreciated that because that school could feel really cold, so hard right. and cold. And I liked the fact that you weren't an acting teacher. So you were right. out sort of outside. Yeah. Like and I was neutral. like, this guy's on our side, you know, he's yeah. not a teacher that's going to, you know, yeah, I thought yeah. that too. So, so one of the things that comes up a lot is just, you know, we we have all these experiences, we have all these thoughts about it, but at the end of the day, we were a bunch of teenagers. Right. And we were all messes in some way or another. And I'm just wondering, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes of yeah. having this job where every year you get a new crop of messes. Yeah. <laughs> and and how like how I'm just curious about how it all came across to you. Did it did it feel like I think it is now when I look in the rear view, we were all over dramatizing everything all the time. I, I, well, I'm trying to remember way, way back at the beginning. Um, 
how it was because I know later on what I started doing was I would look at alums um, and I considered an alum anyone who went to the school. There was a time where alums were only, well, you have to, you know, you had to have your degree to be considered an alum. I always thought that was, you know, crap. Um, in fact, that's why I started uh, uh, what became Theater School News. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason I started it was so that alums could just find out what other alums were doing. And I specifically didn't want to not limit it to in this field. Because what I, what I realized was people were leaving the school with, you know, 90% of them thinking I'm going to have a career on stage and I'm going to, you know, get into, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be in multiple plays of Guthrie. That's what I'm going to do. And then what happens is the percentage flip-flops and only 10% end up, you know, doing stuff like that. But what happens is that what I believed was the training people got at the theater school and other theater training schools, not just in the acting program, all the programs, it gave you, it developed skills in you that you were able to apply in many different areas. And like uh, there's uh, Rick Sadler, graduated in 86, a BFA in acting. And I'm, I'm sure at the time he thought, That's, this is what I'm going to do. He got a part-time job uh, with... Uh, phone company. I can't remember what, let's say Illinois Bell. It wasn't that, but it was some phone thing. And what happened was because of his training at the theater school, he was so good at observing what was going on and paying attention to other people and listening to what other people said in meetings and his bosses and stuff they kept promoting him and they had offered him a full-time job and he ended up a vice president. But with, he had no intention of doing that, but it's just that the skills that he had developed. Now I'm not saying it was only the theater school. Also it's what he brought with him to the theater school, how he took advantage of the theater school and very likely which teachers he had. And hey, I have to tell you, I listened to your uh, podcast with uh, Jeff Brown, Mm -hmm. and when when he said the biggest mistake I made was my monologue for Showcase, and as soon as (laughs) as soon as he said that, my my mind now thirty six years of this it went back to his monologue, and I remember watching it, thinking, Jeff, Jeff, why? Why are you doing this? But, and I think in the conversation you had, somebody mentioned, well, Jane Alderman should have stepped in, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I think sometimes, and I'm not saying Jeff did this, but sometimes uh, people came in with, this is the monologue I want to do. And maybe Jane or whoever was advising them tried to steer them away from it, you know, but that no, that's what they wanted to do. And Jane, as every other faculty member, they're responsible for a number of people. So they're not going to, so I think, and that that actually reminds me of a Bella story. Uh, Sometime in the 80s, she did Romeo and Juliet. She did it a number of times. 
and I worked on the show with her as a, uh, what was I called? It, I wasn't an advisor. Uh, I, I watched and I, and I talked to her about stuff. And what happened was I remember something was going on in rehearsal and she was trying to get an actor. Let's say she was trying to get an actor to, uh, I, I don't know what it was, but she kept giving the actor notes and everything. And the actor never did what never ended up doing what she wanted. And she just moved on. And after rehearsal that day, I said, Bella, why didn't you just say, you know, pick up the damn hat or, or whatever, whatever it was she was trying to get me to do. And she said, I'm not going to tell people what to do. I, I direct them and guide them. And she said, if they end up to, if they don't do what I'm thinking they should do, I let it go and move on because I have a whole play to worry about. But anyway, I, I laughed when he said that. But because when you go to showcase, the thing about showcase is when those agents are there, they know that everyone up on that stage has been trained as an actor. They know that. They know you can work. You know, they, they know it. So I always, I always thought, do something that, uh, do something normal. Do or do something that that a person who looks like you we get cast would us. Do. Yes, and and just if you're a good actor, you make it believable, and they're saying, "Hey, she's good. I'm I'm going to call her in." And a lot of times, or sometimes, it depends on what they're looking, what they happen to be looking for. Let's say when you go to L.A., uh, there was an actor. Was Josh Waters there when you were there? No. Um, well, okay. This is my memory of not being able to remember stuff. What was the uh, Seinfeld? Mm -hmm. Remember the TV show? That was on for like 11 years. Mm -hmm. And then after it went off the air, each of the actors went on to do different things. Well, the guy who played, was his name George? Yeah, Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander. I don't remember when, but there was going to be, uh, and it only lasted one season, uh, a sitcom with him, and then they needed a young kid to play his son. And Josh Waters looked like what they were looking for. So when he went out to L.A., I mean, he had no idea this was going on. Like, uh, it exploded for him. Mm. He ended up not, He ended up not getting it. And of course, a couple of years later, was very happy he didn't get it because the show. Did you do you remember the show at all? No, I didn't. Like, it's, it's a spinoff. You're saying of Sunday yeah, Sunday. it was a spinoff, and it completely bombed. Mm. But, wow. but, it, it, but timing is a big part of it. Like you know yeah. what they need at any given time, and I think you know there's a bajillion and one. Uh, white girls who want to be actors. So, you know, right, the, the, right. Your, the chances are that the stable doesn't need to be filled out in that way at Showcase. Do they still do yeah. Showcase and go to the same places? As far as I know, um, after I retired, uh, the only information I get from the theater school is the announcement about the uh, annual fundraiser that they do. Uh, and I get asked for money. I guess I get treated the same way alums get treated. Correct. Correct. There, there, there isn't a type of uh, theater school news for retirees. There is for the university. There's an organization, 
that I'm part of, but that's retirees from all over the university. Yeah. Um, what was it like scouting? Because you scouted people, right? Like, didn't you go? Yeah. Okay. So well, how could you tell if someone had what it took to be at the theater school? Well, you know, that is, that's a really good question because I, the only ones I participated in a lot consistently were the acting auditions. And what would happen is initially when I did it, uh, I was just sitting there watching, but I would see what the faculty members would do with uh, the auditionees. And what became very apparent to me very quickly, and by quickly, I mean number of years, was I could tell I would be like, she's going to get in. He's not going to get in. But it, and it was a combination of the what we what we saw them doing, but also the philosophy of the theater school, because there were people who were probably or were good actors that the school did not accept because they didn't think it was a good match. But they knew that you know this person will probably do quite well as, or could do well as an actor. Now, to your average 17 year old, it's crushing, you know, to get yeah, letters yeah. saying no, but especially if it's a school, that's the one you wanted to go to. But, and there, we did reach a point where one of the full-time faculty members, uh, this is when I, after, this is when I was assistant dean and after I had been director of admissions. Um, a faculty member on the performance side objected to the fact that two staff members were participating in the auditions, you know, and giving input. Well, one thing I never, uh, like, let's say I was doing an audition with Trudy, you know, Tr Trudy and I would talk about different people and she would say, well, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? And I would say it, but I, but the comment, I would say most is, Trudy, you're the one who's deciding, not me. You, you know, take whatever I have to say, but you're the one who's going to be teaching this person, you know, so you decide. But a, a performance faculty member objected that there were two staff members, me being one of them, that were participating somehow. And I know the way that one got ended was at that point, Rick Murphy was like, you know, the god of the school. And Rick just said, no. John knows. He he does know. So I'm perfectly comfortable with him, you know, being part of the decision making. I don't think he said part of the decision that I would be allowed to be in the room and give input. Yeah, because you what you can probably see right to the center of is how a person is going to deal with that environment, which is not for everybody. And which is really very demanding. Yeah. And some people are just not, you know, you can see from a mile away that they're going to be problematic because they're not ready for something as well, rigorous. So. Well, funny you use the word problematic because what that makes me think of more often than not, I would see someone in an audition and say, he is a problem. He is going to get in. Uh, and yeah, you know that makes sense. It, it would be because they would do something 
they would respond in an unexpected way that you didn't think anyone would ever do that. And they would do it and you would think, ah, he's in. Mm. Uh, now, <laughs> now, is that, would that be the reason you got in? Probably not, but it's the way my mind worked. Of but course. the thing is, and, and also, I don't, Gina, I don't think that uh, what, I, what I saw was talent, you know, ab ability to act. I didn't, and, and I would say, oh, you know, they're going to be a problem. But I didn't see it as, oh, they're not ready for, for the school. I'd, and I think part of the reason for that was that's not what I was, you know, looking for. I didn't, maybe I should have been, but I wasn't. You may be gratified to know uh -oh. that a great number of people, when we asked them, why did they pick DePaul, say, they sent me something in the mail. And they were the, uh, that's my experience. DePaul, mm -hmm. to my recollection, was the only, and how they got my name, I'll never know, uh, sent me a brochure. Mm. And, and, and I ha had no idea about going to college. So in my mm. mind, oh, they sent me a brochure. It's a theater school. I guess that's where I'll go. And mm. I mean, I guess, thank God I got in because I, I didn't have any uh, backup plan. But a great number of people say, I mean, the marketing. Yeah, the yeah. marketing. There's a few people who knew that they wanted to go to a conservatory. They, you know, auditioned at several places. They got in at DePaul, whatever. But for the most part, it was yeah. They reached out to me. So that's good on you. Great. Good. Well, that that's probably more DePaul marketing than anything to do with the theater school. But you scarred, uh, scouted people. You went to the like the the high school association yeah. things and stuff. Yeah. And so when you when you went there, were you literally just looking for raw talent, or like how? I, I just am so curious as to like what is and maybe you you answered it a little bit. But um, when you went to a high school event where these teenagers were, you mm -hmm. know, in the middle of nowhere, like we talked to, I think it was Jen Ellison. Um, that said that she, you knew her theater teacher or something like that. But were you looking? Oh, she went to Muncie. She said something Muncie about Muncie Theater to Festival. Mun Muncie, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that was the the International Thespian Festival. That's it. it used so, to be in Muncie. It's now somewhere else. So you weren't an actor, but you you no. knew what talent was. Where the heck does that come from? That was just all the observation I did in the auditions I did at the theater school. And you just, and every once in a while, you know, there's somebody who comes along and you realize that person is exceptional. We would be lucky if we got that person. I remember one strange story. There was, I won't give his name, but it's somebody who ended up, he got his BFA in acting. He came to DePaul uh, he was not from Chicago and I don't know where he was staying, but he was only there for a couple of days and he ended up, he was auditioning for us and for Northwestern. And I don't know how it happened, but I ended up driving him to his Northwestern audition. I can't remember. You know, he was a high school kid. He had no, he didn't know how right. the L worked or anything. I mean, I was amazed his parents allowed him to go. Well, what happened was he did his theater school audition first, and he was very good, and I knew he was going to be accepted. He didn't know that I knew. And then, like, two days later, you know, when I took him up to Northwestern, uh, you know, I probably had some coffee, waited a few hours, and then 
brought him back. The whole drive back, all he kept doing was bad-mouthing Northwestern. You know, and I was like, and he would talk about how great, you know, the theater school was. And I said, you know, it could be you just had, you had a lot of fun in your audition, which he did at the theater school. And I said, just because the audition was different at Northwestern and you didn't get the, you didn't, you don't think it was right for you, think about it. I said, for one thing, you don't know if either school is going to accept you. And I said, so that might happen. But if both schools accept you, you shouldn't make a decision today. You should really, really think about it. And then, of course, I remember dropping him off wherever I dropped him off at, driving away and thinking, oh, my God, what did I just do? You know, I work at a school, and if, if anyone ever finds out that I did this, you know, They'll say, what the hell, you know, why the hell did you do that? But I was looking out for his interests. And I thought, and probably at the time, though, I'm not sure it's true. I was thinking, you're 17 years old. You know, you're making a decision that is going to affect you probably for the next four years. So you really should look at all the different factors and don't make it all so black and white. You know, this is good. This is bad. The blessing and the curse of doing something like this at such a young age is that you have no idea what right. you're getting yourself into. Because, and my husband is a doctor, I always say this if anybody really knew what it's like to go through medical school, nobody would be, would become a doctor because it's, it's so intense. And obviously, theater school is an intense, intense in a completely different way, but intense nonetheless, it is. I mean, we were. Uh, busy from morning till night. And mm -hmm. if we had jobs, then we were busy 24 hours a day, practically. Right. It was a very, and that's another, like talking about life lessons or things that you get from the theater school, even if you don't go on to become an actor, discipline is one of them. Yeah. Not being afraid to, you know, get up in the morning for your job, then go to class, then go to rehearsal that, you know, it, it, it really, because when I hear stories about people in other college situations, they had so much free time, you know, they had so much time to like hang out and get into trouble. And I feel like that is something about the theater school. It, you really didn't have an opportunity to get yourself into too much trouble when you weren't, you know, actually there at the school. Most uh, of us. I, I yeah, I was going to say, I don't know about that last thing, because um, I think a lot of people got in trouble. Yeah, a lot of people uh, in true. different ways. But we didn't get, and not yeah. many got in trouble, like, with the law. Right. Well, that's, right. you know. um, what about the cut system? Did it gut you? Did it did it hurt? Did, how did you deal with that? I, you know, it's, it's like anything else. You walk into a, not anything else, but many situations you walk into it, like, oh, okay, I'm new here. What, what's going on here? Okay, this happens, this happens, this happens. So at the beginning, you're just trying to keep everything straight and, and not say anything really stupid. So I just accepted, okay, that's, that's part of it. And what happened was the school, it did what Rick Murphy was hoping it would do. It grew and changed. And um, at the old Goodman School of Drama downtown, um, they would cut students mid-year you know not oh, wow. not just at the end of the year and the way they did it was they would on a bulletin board this is what I was told on a bulletin board they would just post a list and if your name was on it you you were coming back the next semester and if your name wasn't you were gone and then at 
at DePaul, that was obviously that was not the way DePaul operated, but it was the way the theater school operated. And DePaul always, uh, the administration of the university always supported what the theater school decided to do. But, you know, the reason, you know, it went through that thing of first it was uh, there were no more cuts. The, the first change they made was that uh, the cut you could only be cut, I think the first change was, you could only be cut if you had also received a warning. Then they did it where they, if you made it uh, through the first year of the MFA program, you were in it for the second and third year. And in the undergraduate, they did it first, if you made it in the third year, you were guaranteed. Then they changed it if you made it into second year you know, you were guaranteed. Um, and then while I was there, they made the decision that any student uh, accepted into the school who decides to come to school, we're committing to that student for the duration. And oh, but, so you didn't have a number of students that you had to cut? No, no. Oh. no. And, and they still, I, the school, like any uh, college, they reserved the right to uh, not readmit someone, you know, if they do something like uh, they don't earn enough credits. That, that doesn't apply to theater school because you're in a package thing. But like at the theater school, let's say spring quarter, you decided voice class wasn't for you. Well, you couldn't return to the third year because the start of the third year was built on the assumption that you had all the skills taught in first and second year. And if you didn't have all those skills because spring quarter, you just decided, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You didn't come back. And, and I'm sure there were other, there must've been other pressures like um, many other, I don't know if any other actor training school still has a cut system or um, uh, for a number of years, schools, uh, had a cut system, but they didn't call it that. We were the ones who were just, I guess, not very smart and continued to, yeah, we cut students. You know, sometimes that's all you have to say to people and they immediately have no interest in you. you know, mm. that, I don't want to deal with that. That's very surprising about the numbers. I really have always assumed that you know, the idea is we'll admit, how, how many people like get admitted to a class? Or maybe that's also depends on uh, the year. Because I feel like I feel like we started out with that first day when everybody's there in the pit in the lobby together. Right. I really felt like we had about 50 students, but really only my graduating class was 25. Yeah, it's usually about, yeah. I think I thought it was more in the first year because I, my memory is there were usually four sections at first year. Mm -hmm. And by the time oh, yeah. you were uh, fourth year, there were two sections. So mostly, mostly it always did happen that about half the people got cut out. Yeah. Or, or the other thing is, uh, see, both of you got through the school. So the people who get through the school have a tendency to say, so half of them got cut. The reality is of the, of those, of that half, a number of them left of their own decision. Um, 
Right. 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 Who just decided it's not for me. Yeah. They, or or yeah. they couldn't afford it anymore. Yeah. You know, or, right. you know, some uh, something terrible happened within their family mm-hmm. and they, they needed to be with their family and could not come back to school. We also talk a lot about how, you know, mo- many, if not most of the people, uh, at least that we knew who got cut went on to graduate from Columbia. Mm. And so there's not, you know, I, what I've said is it doesn't, it didn't really seem to me like there was a lot of rhyme or reason to, to the cut because people who were very talented got cut and people who weren't that talented graduated. And I know, I know it's like a, an amalgamation of a, phys, of a um, financial calculation as well as probably if, because we had a lot of people in that first year, a lot of rabble rousers in that right. first year who really, I'm imagining from your end, made things very difficult, like just really um, obstreperous, oppositional, right? Is that is that one of, a, one of well, the main reasons that people would leave? No, I, I think, you know, and it, what I saw was the the problem people it was always a problem in a specific area. Like uh, they didn't like being told what to do. Um, uh, uh, Or they just thought movement class was stupid. And, and the way it, uh, that attitude came out was they became a problem, but I don't, I don't think it was, you know, a lot of people. And I think some of the people did it, uh, for attention. <laughs> Imagine that yeah. an actor, looking a for TV attention. actor looking for attention. Wow. Oh, you you mentioned the whole thing about um, actor studio and and what you did with with uh, Rick and Bella, but um, I I remember that we would occasionally I don't know if it was a regular thing or just whenever it it could be worked out, but we had. Uh, actors professional actors like one year we had brian dennehy who was uh, come and talk to us oh yeah it was a real trip that guy i mean (laughs) that guy was i'm not sure it did much for 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 the theater school to have him there but was that a an every year thing yeah that that went on all the time and often uh the the gala that we did at the end of the year uh yeah um, whoever, uh, people who were being honored at the gala, often we would ask one of them to come and talk to the school. Um, or if it was someone who uh, was at, maybe in a play at the Goodman Theater, you know, and someone at the theater school knew them, you know, and they would ask them, you know, would you come and talk to the students? Sometimes it backfired. Like, I don't remember the specific Brian Dennehy one, but um Again, my memory is not. Who's the playwright from now 30, 40 years ago at Goodman Theater? Ah, very well-known. Mammoth, David Mammoth. Oh, no. He came? Yes. And he ended up, this was like the first or second year that the school was at DePaul. And basically what he told all the students was, you know, if you want to act, get out there and act. 
why are you in a, a school? You, you know, <laughs> you have to get out. You have to get out there and act. Which, of course, the faculty who were there also, because everyone was enamored with David Mamet, they were probably pretty horrified, and they probably had to do some damage control in their classes after that. But of course, the irony was, uh, two years later, I think. Uh, he opened his own uh, training program. Right, the Atlantic at NYU. Oh, right. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, he's also just a ginormous ass white. um, I I don't remember. um, But I do remember that happening. The gala was one of my favorite memories because I was Edward James Olmos's um, uh, escort sounds terrible. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean. Um, Whatever they call student liaison. and Chaperone. Chaperone. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> that guy helped me when I moved to LA. So oh, the first time. Really? So anyway, I had the ball and I, I had fun hanging out with Ray Liotta. That was like the highlight of my, of my career at the school. That's amazing. Yeah. I never, I never went to a gala. So I'm, I'm, they sounded great. I never, <laughs> <laughs> I never got to go. I don't know why this, this story just popped into my head, but um, one year for some reason, Celeste Holm came to the Merle Reskin. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was a special evening of uh, honoring her. And I was outside smoking a cigarette and she got out of her car. So excuse my dog barking in the background. She got out of her car and was wearing some type of a cape and she had beautiful white hair and she remained a gorgeous woman. I don't know what she, I, she must've been in her seventies or, or, or even older. And she and I was smoking a cigarette. She walked up to me and she said, "Your body is the temple that houses your soul. Don't destroy it." And walked off. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Well, damn! I put the cigarette out right then and there." <laughs> um, yeah. But I just wanted to say thank you for caring about about us as students. It was all that was just a cover. Ah! <laughs> well, thank you for lying so well. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks!